Today, Jason and I continue our journey through the Monopoly plan of content as we reach Jason's favorite quote of mine. There are two types of customers, those who want to pay and those who don't want to pay. And actually how to use those who don't want to pay as your allies. You're listening to Digital Bacon FM. Tune us in, lock us on, and tattoo us on your brain. 11 o'clock it is, Tuesday. Good morning, Mr. Stephen Barnes. How goes it with you, sir? I'm all good, thank you. What about you? Not too shabby. I'm actually busy doing some research for my uh, Hong Kong show on Friday. Um, I don't know if you managed to yeah. catch it last week, but I've decided to go back in time with Phil Whelan. So I uh, created this little segment, which is 100 years or 10 decades of food in the world. And uh, we started in the 20s. Uh, and it's actually fascinating to go back and see how people lived 100 years ago and the brands that were created. Uh, and uh, this, yeah. this coming uh, week on Friday, I'm doing... Food from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And of course, as you know, uh, but before your time, of course, uh, you know, the, the British suffered rationing all the way until 55. Uh, no butter, no yeah. sugar, no salt, no lard, no bacon, no meat, no tea even. Can you imagine waking no. up in 1954 in England and not being able to have a cup of tea? I know. No, it gets to the height of the national DNA, that doesn't it? Uh, and one of the fascinating things that I found online was a ration book uh, by the British Ministry of Food. <laughs> well, here's something for you. Um, even to this very day, as I'm leaving the house, when I'm at home in Australia, uh, and I'm wanting to make sure that I've got everything with me, I'll sort of tap my pockets and then I'll say exactly what my mother used to say, which is just as she's heading out the door, gas mask, ration book. <laughs> You know, part part of what I'm I'm trying to convey uh, uh, to the audience in Hong Kong is we actually don't know how lucky we are. You know, we've we we live a life where we don't appreciate the hardship that people had. We go to a supermarket, we've been desensitized to everything. We have luxury beyond that of our parents and their parents' parents. You know. Um, and we don't look at the world in wonder and awe as we should. Absolutely. And uh, Jordan Peterson will, you know, say that um, it's an absolute miracle that, you know, this species is, you know, walking around, living peacefully and, you know, interacting and creating, you know, the, uh, the, the, the growth that is uh, humankind when, you know, you look at other species and we should be tearing our faces off each other. You know, I mean, of course, that, that does happen at one degree, but sort of at the at the street level where you're describing the, the, the life level that we uh, were able to enjoy. Um, you know, we're absolutely privileged to have the experience that we have. My God. And for everything that we have, we want more and we want more at the expense of others. It's a complete fucking shit show. Absolutely, isn't it? Yes. But absolutely. anyway. That was my segue into your introduction that there are two kinds of customer and two types of website. Hit me, baby. Well, okay. All right, mate. Yeah. So usual story. Um, same drill, same drill, same kit. Uh, how to build an offer from nothing with no money invested using uh, a very modern business model called intelligent content marketing that is 
manifested on our websites, the Hong Kong Visa Center uh, com and uh, the other associated websites, along with intelligentcontent.marketing, uh, tells the story of the Hong Kong Visa Center, uh, which is essentially this business model that uh, is constructed in a particular way to yield a monopoly. Anyway, uh, as part of uh, the monopoly planner materials that we've developed uh, over the last few weeks and months, we've been our you and I have been working our way through uh, the 10 modules and the 36 chapters, and we've just come to module six, mm. uh, chapter 21, uh, where, as you said, there are two types of customers, which means basically uh, there should be two types of websites. So but what do I mean by there's two types of customers? Well, um, <laughs> uh, I've come to understand, as you know, very, very much because uh, we've talked about this before. Yeah, it was do you want to finish in, the lines for me? It was a kick in the nuts. There are two kinds of customers, those who want it for free and those who are willing to pay. And Mr. Black, you are the type who likes to pay. <laughs> I'll, exactly. never, I'll never forget want- that dinner. And you know what even made that dinner worse? Uh-huh. I fucking paid for you dinner. Paid. <laughs> <laughs> so not only yeah, did you rub my nose in it, I still paid for it. But you're, you see, you're a gentleman and a scholar, so I wouldn't expect anything less from you. So why would I want to interfere with your style? <laughs> less so the scholars who I don't have the benefit of a formal education. <laughs> right. Uh, yes, yes. Very true. Right. Two kinds of customer. Right. Those who want to pay and those who don't want to pay. Right. <laughs> So those who don't want to pay, what you do is you give them everything that they could possibly ever need to help them solve their problem for free. Mm. And then that serves the purpose that it does to help create a tribe and generate goodwill and get referrals and all that kind of good stuff. Do people, um, do people trust free, Stephen? Um, I think people trust what their perception of free is as presented to them if mm. it's worthy of their trust. Okay. Um, and this actually goes back to what we were discussing last week, right? Mm. Where, um, you know, it's all about garnering trust. Yeah. And uh, the way that we have garnered trust is the way that we presented ourselves and acquitted ourselves um, and shown to the world through our websites that, you know, you can see everything that you need to see to be able to make an informed decision as to whether or not we're worthy of your trust. And mm. that's the formula for success as far as I'm concerned. Um, but yeah, to the extent that uh, you give them stuff for free that's genuinely helpful, solves problems, answers questions, and it's manifestly credible, uh, then I think you earn your trust just by delivering on that mission. Mm. Um, okay. So those who don't want to pay will get everything that they need for free and from our websites, that is... Um, Hong Kong Visa Handbook, and then the other, my blog, the Hong Kong Visa Geese, everything is 100% free on there, and they are deliberate no-sell zones. Um, so that uh, when we're initially um, having our discussions with, with prospect relationships, they're in the main starting on our free websites because it's our free websites that have generated all the SEO capabilities as we've mapped the knowledge graph and we've published through them. Mm. Um, so the trick is to uh, basically get get the, get those who are on the free website who wish not to be on the free website but onto the paid for website to be able to get them off the free website onto the paid website as fast as possible and, <laughs> and easy as possible. Mm, right? the without pillow. without trickery. Absolutely. Yeah, without trickery. Right. Just just make make get, get, being efficient for them, and then. Mm. 
uh, once they're on the Hong Kong Visa Center website, that's where we sell our stuff. Um, and selling our stuff uh, is uh, really all about um, uh, separating the value that we deliver, which is peace of mind on the one hand, uh, from the actual outcome that uh, they get as a result of uh, having gone through that process, which is a visa label in a passport. Um, so we uh, have those have those conversations, and when we, um, you know, we're having a conversation about how to exchange money for the service outcome that they're looking for. Um, so whilst we understand how free websites work, um, I thought what uh, we would cover today is on the paid website, kind of you know what sort of things are in play uh, when you've got a customer that's now on the website where they're ready to part with money. Um, what are the sort of, you know, human foibles that can be anticipated such that your uh, sales proposition and the service uh, design that you put forward via your paid for websites um, have sort of, you know, factored in uh, human foibles. And, uh, uh, and to this, we just have to look to a book by uh, a guy called Dan Ariely called Predictably Irrational. Um, and so I read Prediction, Predictably Irrational and learned um, a, a great deal about the, you know, the way that uh, humans are emotional animals and how, uh, in a sense, you can, um, if you understand the irrationality, you can design a proposition that you know, s speaks to that irrational potential and be very effective in the process. So, um, you know, what do I mean? So here, uh, for example, in his book, he talks about um, uh, the uh, the true cost, of, sorry, the true cost of zero cost. Um, and he says that the true, most transactions have both uh, an upside and the downside. Um, and when you uh, are coming across a free proposition, invariably what you do is you forget the downside um, and you get an emotional lift mm. because, you know, you're getting something for nothing and you've got nothing to lose. So, you know, that puts you in a state of mind, which then results in the perception that what's offered is immensely more valuable than it actually is. Okay. So that speaks to the sort of psychological um, dimension towards free. Uh, and you asked earlier about whether people would trust free or not. Mm. Well, if you get if you get the free the free messaging right, basically what you're doing is you're uh, being able to uh, generate a perception that uh, is actually more valuable than it that is in fact just because of you know the, the quality associated with with this label free that's being associated with it. Mm. Okay, and have yeah. you have you have you ever had any any negative to somebody actually paying you and then realizing that they could have done it all themselves <coughs> or are the, the the sort of triggers to people wanting to pay for it really about their own self-interest and the convenience and the fear of not doing it properly? Have you ever had anybody say, bloody hell, I wouldn't have paid you if I knew I could do it for free? Well, no, because, um, you know, the kind of funnel that we have that um, – prospect clients sort of travel down through to the point where they get to that decision 
where they have to make their uh, mind up as to whether they're going to part with money or not. Mm. That funnel, that journey has been all about you don't need to pay, you don't need to pay, you don't need to pay, you don't need to pay. Mm. So by the time they're ready to you know, sign up, they realize what they're getting, what they're buying for is what they're paying for is ultimately peace of mind. And then there's mm. a guarantee on the back of that. Absolutely. So you never kind of have that experience. But what? Well, it's a good question that you ask because there is this sort of you know general theme that goes around on the public forums in Hong Kong as to the kind of value that immigration consultants might add. Mm. Um, and you know they, the general perception is that immigration consultants are really just glorified form fillers, um, which is you know if you don't really understand what goes into an immigration situation, uh, you know it's a fair observation to make. Um, but I always say, well, you know, that's fine. You can look at it that way. Uh, surely, you know, you can go off and do this stuff without paying for any professional help. Indeed, our entire proposition is designed to enable people to do that properly. Mm. Um, but if you go off and do it by yourself and you genuinely don't know what you're doing, um, if you get a result, then congratulations to you because you've proven yourself worthy of the challenge. And you saved yourself, you know, a, a, a not inconsiderable fee in professional service, and that's worthy of merit, mm. and that's good. But what happens if you get denied? Mm. It's when you get denied that the true value that an immigration consultant adds, that can, is in a sense objectively justifiable, uh, comes to the fore. Like for you personally, of course, it was never, it, it was never, there never, never moments doubt as to the value that could be added, right? It was there for you, no big issue. True. Um, but a lot of, a lot of people, um, you know, need to be persuaded of that. And and the other the other side, I suppose, if you're dealing with the uh, majority of professional people, they're going to weigh up the time it's going to take to do it yourself, the minimal cost of actually getting somebody else to do it, the peace of mind factor, and. You go, you go ahead and make more money by somebody else worrying about your visa and you just let it go. That, that was my, my rationale well, to it. Well, that's right. And if you, if, you, if you generally understand what's involved in an immigration application, you realize that on any objective measure, the whole process is a complete palaver. Hmm. And, and if you're happy to get involved in a palaver, and some people thrive on that sort of structured chaos, then, you know, off you go and enjoy it. It just so happens that, 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 that I thrive in that environment because I can, I seek to tame it, right? That's what my business is all about. Um, but yeah, if you're, if, if you're, if you're happy with that, then, um, you know, go for it. Mm. But, but otherwise, you know, the way I look at the service that we have, I always say to myself, you know, I've got to go and get myself each year, each year I've got to do this and I do, I do it in person. I've got to get a drive, an international driving permit because I drive, I go to Okinawa in Japan. I need to have this driving permit. My Hong Kong or my Australian licenses are not sufficient to hire a car in Okinawa. You need to have an international driving permit. And the issue once it, I've got to get one each year. So what I have to do is I've got to traipse off to the transport department and I've got to each time I've got to fathom which series of forms and which number of counties that I've got to go to and which lines I've got to join. Uh, and then, you know, kind of wait around, not really knowing what, what experiences that, that, that awaits me. And am I going to forget something or, or am I going to stop here because, you know, I, I haven't I haven't done some prior step properly or something like that. And I go through this exercise. It takes me about two hours, two really valuable hours of a of a, of, a, of, a, of a very otherwise serviceable afternoon, um, just faffing around getting this piece of paper. And mm. if I could pay somebody to do that, 
way. You know, I'm happy. Mm. Uh, but unfortunately, I can't. I'll, I'll so tell you, I've got to faff around and do it myself. I'll, I'll tell you what's a, quite a booming little business here is uh, people who stand in the queue for you. So it mm. takes it takes such a long time to get any official documentation here. You have to go down to Durban or wherever the, the offices are located. You stand in the queue for an ID book or whatever it is. And then they have professional queue people. They do that for you. And then when your time yeah. comes up, you go and take their place in the queue. Um, but you yeah. know, you, you're talking about documentation. And I recently had to get uh, a new British passport because mine was coming to the end of its um, <coughs> ten, 10 years. And yeah. you, you know, they, they've moved it. In the old days, you would just go to the consulate in or the, the British office in um, in Wanchine and say, "Right, I want a new passport," and then they would actually issue it for you. Um, but that's mm. changed. They've moved it all back to mm. England, and that mm. applies wherever it's you. Still things actually. Oh really? Well, they yeah, make they make it's it. Actual, although it's all, yeah, it's all yeah. The actual issue document issue occurs in the Philippines. Sorry to interrupt you. No, that's right. The document issue. Uh, happens out of the Philippines, but all the decision making happens. Uh, no, the other way around. The decision making, the due diligence happens in the Philippines. The decision making and the document issue happens in issues and happens in the in the UK. Ah. Yeah, sorry, carry on. Um, so the, the the long and short of it was, I went on to Her Majesty's government uh, website to do all of it, and as you say, it's a palaver, and you've got to submit the forms, put the forms into an envelope, post them to England, yada, yada, yada. And then I was just recommended a passport consultant. And I went, I sat, I had a cup of coffee, they had a laptop, they filled everything. And they said, you'll get an SMS within the next two weeks to say that your stuff's on its way. And sure as Bob, within two weeks, I had it. It cost twice the price of actually doing it myself. But it was a third of the pain in the ass factor and it was worth every bloody cent. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Was a firm that did it called CIBT? Uh, no, it was a local one, the passport. I think they called the passport people or something like okay. that. But absolutely yeah. professional. Yeah. They said you need to come with some photos, a proof of residence, your British passport, and that's it. And it was mm. a nice cup of coffee. They filled <coughs> everything in and it was done. Half an hour out of my life. It was easy. You know, that's that's it. So that's a service and that's uh, there's, there's, there's real value in a service, right? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, back to sort of, you know, predictably irrational. Um, I'm thinking through, you know, how your service pricing and the overall sort of commercial propositions configured. Um, Ariella makes a point about uh, the paid versus a friendly favor. Mm. Um and uh, what he means by this is uh, something that I've been using intrinsically since well, I started the Hong Kong Visa Center almost coming up for eight years ago, is this idea that you know people have an expectation to come and see me um, for an hour and I charge them $3,000 and it's all, all agreed that got, I'm going to charge them $3,000 for the consultation. Um, they come and they sit with me and actually I can solve their problem in for 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, and after I've solved their problem, um, like it's like they look at me and say, well, what happens now? Then, you know, we bring it to an end and they they reach for their checkbooks. And I always say to them, ah, you know, look, it doesn't matter. if This, this is all took me five minutes to deal with this. Um, delighted to assist. I'm really happy that, you know, I can sort of be of service. And then send them out with this basically friendly favor 
uh, under their wings uh, rather than reaching into their pocket and taking $3,000 off them, which, you know, I could quite reasonably so do. Um, but that's pro- that, that approach has proven to be phenomenally successful because of the incredible goodwill that you're able to generate from that, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and, uh, and again, this sort of aligned with, with, with that is this, very often I, I'm asked to have conversations with people, referrals in from clients, um, and they don't know how it works, and they're just glad that they've got me on the phone, and they, you know, they, they take me through their situation, and then I give them all the advice that they need, and then we wrap up the conversation, and they invariably say, well, you know, how do I bill you for this? Uh, and then, you know, I say to them, no, 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 there's no, no bill. I'm just, you know, delighted to be assistance and, and all the rest of that good stuff. It just is so powerful, and it costs me basically you know, well, nothing to do but my time, but that's just, in any event, needing to understand what's going on now, do you, uh, to know whether I can add any value or not. So I have to spend that time. Do, yeah. you, do you track the number of meetings you have and the number of successes you have so people that will actually then take up your services and pay thereafter? Uh, no, no, I don't. Um, certainly the successes, I mean, we have all the approvals data, that, that just comes naturally with our system. But mm. uh, we don't. we don't sort of, I don't track my meetings like that. Uh, we know kind of what's happening in the business. Um, you know, we know what the pipeline, what the pipeline looks like, and you know what the, the what the what the type of opportunities they are for us. But we haven't done any deep data correlation because um, uh, I'm not quite sure what I do with the insights. To be honest, apart from it being incredibly interesting at the moment, I, I you know I, I don't have any clear. Um, sort of, you know, vision on what I might be able to learn from that. So that's why I haven't, my, but, my, but my mind a, hasn't actually turned to it. A, but we a, can do it any, any time, essentially. That's the truth. As, yeah, a, as, as, as a gut feel, would you say that the majority of people who sit in an office and spend 15 minutes with you get, get the information that they need and then engage your services to actually deliver? Uh, yeah, I'd say realistically, nine, 90% of people that come to us with uh, an immigration problem with a disposition to pay money to solve it uh, will, as a result of having spent initial time with me, uh, go on to instructors professionally. So then your time is is, is actually netting, netting good returns. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now, the, ne- the next part, emotion in decision-making. When emotions are charged, we make irrational decisions. <laughs> I, put my hand up, I put my hand up to that. Well, yeah, and we all know it, but we forget it, right? Um, and, uh, you know, very, very, very often I, you know, I, well, whenever I have got a decision that I need to make, uh, I will always sleep on it because I know by the time the next, you know, the day, the next day has come along, uh, I've got a different sort of orientation towards it. So, um, uh, if I'm angry or otherwise, you know, wired or fired up, I, I always, you know, strategically omit taking any immediate action because mm. I always make smarter, better decisions the next day. Mm. Um, and it's true. We do make, uh, irrational decisions and, uh, uh, that's one of the sort of lessons I've learned in, in, in life and in dealing professionally with clients. You know, uh, you, you, you sit across at the table from someone who is, is, who's got a genuine beef that may be irrational from your perspective, but, you know, is very real for him because, you know, he's perceived what's gone on in a certain way and he's, he's, he's come to a conclusion that isn't 
actually reflective of the truth as we'd understand it. But that's not important. What's important is he's fed up about it, uh, and it needs to be it needs to be handled properly. Um, and sort of it's sort of understanding that you know once you're dealing with people who are emotionally charged. Um, they can make, you know, incredibly irrational decisions. So what you've got to do is seek to understand them and seek to, you know, defuse in those circumstances and sort of do what you normally do to get relationships back on track. Mm. Um, because there's, there's nothing more destructive than a relationship that's gone completely awire for, you know, one reason or another. Um, more than likely one party, you know, is very much to blame for it having gone south. But, you know, the reality is that relationship still has to be managed and still has to be um, at least sort of neutralized so that there's not nothing sort of negative netted out after, you know, all said and done. Mm. Um, and uh, for me, that's been an integral part of the 200% money back guarantee because, um, you know, when she hadn't been able to deliver, um, notwithstanding all best efforts and endeavors on our part, it just simply hasn't worked on this occasion. You know, it's a big problem for the customer at the other end. And, you know, I don't want to be walking away from a situation like that where, you know, I can't be said to have done absolutely everything within my power, uh, you know, to support. Um, uh, I've still not been successful. At least I can walk away with my head held high because with only our money back, double your money back guarantee, there's a, a measure of, you know, financial compensation there will, uh, you know, ease one burden you know, to a degree or other, if not the whole thing. Mm. Um, but it allows us to walk away, you know, the head, with the heads held high. And, uh, um, you know, uh, knowing that this time uh, it just hasn't come good. But, you know, like I always say to uh, to my guys, being an immigration lawyer or an immigration consultant is like being a doctor. Sometimes, Jason, sadly, the patient dies. <laughs> That's a, that's a cheerful view on immigration. <laughs> you may not get well, out of this office. It's a fact of life. It's a fact of life. You Bring know. the defibrillator. You know, my kids, my my kids, my younger my younger colleagues. I call them my kids. My younger my younger colleagues uh, who are you know sort of still sort of wet behind the ears and they're 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 out straight out of their uh, two year training course and they're into probably their. 15th or 20th case by then and uh, all of a sudden they get their first refusal and you know it, it god bless them it you know it just completely devastates them because mm. they've been able to maintain a 100 percent success rate for as long as they have uh, and i always say don't worry about that's immigration right? you're always going to get denial so uh, mm. you know this is uh this is the start of the rest of your journey if you get if you get 99 over the over the line and one fails it's, you know one percent is a it's a pretty good rate and that's mm. that's kind of what we operate at really now, I've always been curious with uh, the way people do things and why they do it, and especially when it, you know, it involves my own sphere of, of, of work and life. And yesterday I went down to Durban and I was having a potter around the stores because I, I had a little bit of time uh, after I'd done all the bits and pieces I was supposed to do. And I find supermarkets fascinating um for for many many reasons but you know just the the amount of stuff that uh, that they have but also the way that they make us shop and buy and mm -hmm. you know there there was a move uh, i don't i don't know how long ago maybe 10 years or so where they started triggering people's emotional and irrational and impulsive behaviors so 
you know, they've always put milk and bloody bread at the back of the supermarket. So you, your daily purchases, you've got to walk all the way in to get what you need instead of yeah. making it convenient and putting it yeah. in the front. But then you wouldn't buy yeah. anything else. And I was walking around Woolies. So Woolies here is the equivalent of Marks and Sparks. And, yeah. you know, one thing that I've always hated about traveling was this this cattle herding mentality of when you get on an aeroplane or when you go through immigration, you get funneled left, right, left, right. And I know it's a crowd control and a mind control way to do things, but I it, it, I didn't really see it in Hong Kong, only at sort of city super and places like that. But all of the Woolworths here now, you you walk left and then you turn around and you walk right. And basically, you do this big U-shape in and out to get to the till. But yeah. that whole system is about you picking up a packet of crisps, picking up a chocolate, picking up a cool drink, all of the things that they really want you to buy on impulse at the till. And yeah. When you look at it, they've removed convenience and they've put their own desire for extra revenue in that. You can't get in, get out anymore. And it, it's frustrating because I, I don't really want to bloody walk up and down <coughs> the exit to get to a till pay point. Well, that's an interesting point because, um, you know, the science of retailing now is, is so well, you know, designed and thought through. Uh, it would, in a sense, be criminally irresponsible for a professional retailer at scale not to deploy those retail, you know, um, productivity techniques. Because mm -hmm. if it's a science that's proven and worked for the purposes of the business, which conceptually would drive down prices, so they'd argue, mm -hmm. uh, irrespective of that, if it, if it means it's inconvenient to the customer, well, hey, that's just the cost of shopping, right? The cost of shopping is how much you put in the bloody basket at the end of the day. Well, indeed, yeah, 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 yeah. But having said that, I don't know if you've got Aldi um, in South Africa. The but shoe shop? Aldi are, no, they're a German retailer. Nah. That, uh, well, they, they have all these alternate brands to, to, the, main, um, hmm. to the main brands that, that you, know, you, uh, you, you, you can see stock throughout all the major re uh, retailers and supermarkets uh, okay. in, uh, in the West. Um, and certainly in Australia and in Europe, what they've done is, well, Aldi have set themselves up in, in the UK where I think I saw the statistic was something like 68% of the British population visited an Aldi store over the course of a holiday week, hmm. uh, Christmas holiday week. So Aldi have, Aldi have come in with, with new brands and better prices and what have you, but they've done the same in Australia as well, taking on the, the, the Coles and the, um, uh, the Woolworths uh, sort of, you know, duopoly that it really dominates mm. uh, Australian retailing and supermarketing, supermarketing, if you will. Um, yeah, there's there's Aldi uh, in Australia now, and uh, the the way that they lay out their retail offering, it, it, it it's not it's not as though it's all designed along the pure sort of science that we've come to understand that prevails. It's very much sort of wide aisle, stacked high, cheap. You know, three or four different brands of a particular, you know, stable of, of product. Mm. Um, you just go in and you buy the things and you pull them down, and it's kind of like, you know, get in and out as fast as you can. Uh, traffic through is important, uh, and um, uh, don't spend too much money, uh, you know, laying out the, uh, the the produce so that uh, people are going to be um, basically model coddled into buying. Mm. And it seems to be working. <laughs> 
Yeah, and the prices are better. Well, yeah, 68% of uh, the British population visiting an Aldi over the Christmas holiday. Mm. Not bad. I don't think they existed in the UK five years ago. And that will give us the perfect segue to end our show, the effect of expectations and the power of price. Come to that on Friday, sir. So we shall continue on Friday. You have an absolutely awesome Tuesday. And uh, catch up soon. Digital Bacon FM. I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. Join us next time to find out the logic behind answering questions and solving problems as a business strategy for the future. Music